Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Our series, How Firm a Foundation, has been going for two weeks. This is our third week, and we consider yet another platform, you might say, of the firm foundation we have in Jesus Christ. If you recall, our theme verse for this series comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So we know that we have one foundation, it's Jesus. And there are many aspects or or subsequent foundations upon that, like our unity, which we talked about last week, our unity in Christ, or the foundation of the cross of Christ, which we will talk about today. Last week, we also heard about the, the root of many of the problems that the Corinthians, the Christians in Corinth, were facing. They were lining up behind different personas, vying all for different uh, influence and power, and they were deeply divided and at odds with one another. And so Paul calls them to live in the unity that is already theirs in Jesus Christ and is ours as well. Trying to focus on anything other than Jesus, after all, will only result in disunity. And when we allow ourselves to be divided, as Paul says, focusing on our human abilities or desires rather than on Jesus, well, then we rob the cross of Christ of its power, Paul said last week. So it's natural then, that's the verse that leads into our verse today, it's natural for Paul to begin to move from discussing unity to discussing the cross, which is what he does today. Again, if you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to open them up and and follow along as we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we start at verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Again, Paul had just gotten finished saying that, that in focusing on ourselves instead of on Jesus, we rob the cross of, the, of its power. So the natural next question is, well, what is that power? What does the word of the cross do? And Paul gives that answer. For those who are being saved, for us Christians, the word of the cross is the power of God. That is the power for us to be saved. Now, just to be clear, that phrase, word of the cross, he's not talking about just one word. Rather, he means the whole message of the cross. It's the whole history of salvation. It's the whole narrative of how God came to save us. It's how we in this world, when we fell into sin, we were subject to death and eternal damnation. And God began to work in this world. He chose Abraham and through Abraham's descendants, Israel, to start to bring about his plan of salvation, to bring us a Messiah. It's how God then became a man, the Messiah, which we celebrated a month ago at Christmas. How that man, Jesus, grew up, how he lived perfectly, how he brought healing and forgiveness, how he was rejected by his people, how he willingly went to the cross to die for all of our sins and the sins of the entire world. And so the word of the cross, the the history of how God chose to save us, which unfolded over thousands of years, it now today sweeps us up into its story as well. After all, the cross of Jesus became ours very really and very truly when we were baptized. 
Romans 6 says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death and all that his death won for us? And so all of that, that entire narrative is the word of of all of this, God's word, which is the word of the cross. This is God's story and it has been made ours. That's why Paul says to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. God chose for this amazing history, this history of salvation to reach its pinnacle at the cross. Its high point was Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. And now his power comes to us through his word and through our baptism. But that word is folly, Paul says, to those who are perishing. It doesn't make sense to them. People might say, well, why would I want to believe in a God who has to die to save me? I'd rather have a God that looks much more strong, much more wise, much more powerful than that. I've certainly talked about this before. Uh, Most recently, Christ the King Sunday, back in November, we talked about reminding ourselves what the cross actually stands for. The cross was not a a good image at the beginning. The cross has been the symbol of Christianity for so long that we might begin to forget that. But originally, the cross was a symbol of humiliation and embarrassment and deep shame. It was a symbol of suffering and death. And so it would be the last thing that you would expect anyone to choose. But this is what God chose in order to accomplish our salvation. And so it begs the question, as followers of Jesus, if that's what God chose, then what should we expect in our lives? Well, it stands to reason that we would expect the same as Jesus endured. Humiliation, shame, suffering, and even for some death on account of their faith. Today, we live in a culture that characterizes Christians as backwards and simple-minded people. Behind the times, certainly foolish. The world looks at the cross and it can see only folly and weakness. And and that's not new. Paul was writing about this, after all, 2,000 years ago. But not much has changed. But for us Christians... For those who have been given eyes of faith from God, we are able to see something different when we look to the cross. We can see wisdom and power, not man-made wisdom and power, but the wisdom of God and the power of God that saves you and me. We'll talk more about wisdom next week as that's the next foundation that Paul explores, and so we'll explore it. But, but look at what Paul says here in verse 19. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. In other words, God looks down on this world and and us filling it. and, And he says, you think you're so powerful and wise without me? Well, here's what I think about that. 
For all of our supposed wisdom, verse 21, the world can't even know God. We are just groping around in the darkness, not able to find him. Stack up all the things that we think we know in this world, all the wisest uh, sayings and information, and we would still never be able to reach God. We see that today, don't we? People today who are held up as the wisest among us, generally speaking, are those, at least according to the world, who have put all this silly faith stuff behind them. Writing it off, writing faith off as something a previous dimmer people once needed, but no longer. We're well advanced beyond that. They are people usually who can speak of the universe and everything in it with natural, purely natural explanations, as if everything we find can be explained apart from God. But they delude themselves into ignoring that in order to have certain things, things like beauty or morality or truth or life, that there must be something beyond us. Instead, those who deny God's existence are like characters in a play who don't realize, who choose not to realize, that for them to even exist, there must be someone who created them. And it's similar to how the world also views people of power among us. That that those who are considered the most powerful in this world are those with financial power or political power or military power or cultural power. People conceive of power as the ability to create themselves to be whatever they want to be, to do whatever they want to do. But it's like Pontius Pilate when he asked Jesus, Do you not know that I have the power to release you or the power to crucify you? And what did Jesus say? You would have no power over me unless it had been given to you from above. What's more, every religion of this world besides Christianity teaches that we as human beings have the power to do something. Which again goes to show what we as human beings love to believe, that we can do something, either for ourselves or for God. For instance, Islam teaches you how to properly submit yourself to God. Hinduism teaches you that that you are able to properly please the gods. Buddhism teaches you that you are God. And so your own knowledge and enlightenment is your path to true freedom. Atheism or secular humanism teaches you to pursue your own meaning, your own purpose in life apart from any type of God. But you see, they're all the same. They all focus on you and what you are able to do and achieve. But Christianity is different. Christianity is all about the true God who knows that we as human beings are unable to achieve anything of our own. And so God uses the opposite of our so-called abilities in order to save us. Not our wisdom, not our power. Again, look at verse 21. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. In other words, the thing that truly saves us, the cross of Christ, is utter foolishness to us as humans. We can't stand it. We can't stand the cross because the cross is not something that we can do for God. And the cross is not something that we would ever desire from God. 
But the cross is exactly what pleased God in order to save us. Jews demand signs. Paul writes in verse 22 that as the Jewish people at the time of Jesus and the time at Paul, a time of Paul were waiting for a big sign from God, a Messiah, who by worldly standards would give them as a people some power or prestige again. And frankly, Jesus didn't measure up to their standards. And Greeks seek wisdom, Paul goes on. The Greeks were known for their wisdom, figuring things out with their reason. They valued education and power and a noble bloodline. They figured out that that's how to be some, that's how they wanted to be someone in this world. But again, as we heard, none of that wisdom ever got them any closer to God. But we preach Christ crucified. Paul says in verse 23, a stumbling block to the Jews and anyone who seeks after power and folly to Gentiles or anyone who seeks after human wisdom. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. You see, it's through the cross that God accomplishes what we, by all of our power and all of our wisdom, could never accomplish. God accomplished our eternal salvation. Paul goes on, and this is interesting here. He he uses an example to help prove his point, starting in verse 26. And I think really only the Apostle Paul could get away with this. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise. According to worldly standards, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. Paul is using the Corinthians as an example. He's saying, well, look at most of you. You're not educated or powerful or of blue blood. Yet, verse 27, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. See what Paul is saying? He's saying God chose what is foolish, what is weak, what is low and despised, and he's talking about the church. He's talking about the Corinthians he's writing to. He just called them a bunch of uneducated, powerless lowlifes. Okay, he did it a little bit nicer than that, but but remember, he's writing to a bunch of Christians who have been spending all their time infighting with one another. They have been trying to set themselves up as the most important in the church, vying for the best social standing. And Paul responds and says, no, no, that's how the world thinks, but that's not how it, how it works in the church of Christ. That's not how it works among the people of the cross. By the way, as your pastor, I would never call you a bunch of uneducated, powerless lowlifes. Or would I? <laughs> After all, look at verse 29. Paul gives the reason why he's saying that. He's pointing out that, that you see, before God, we don't bring any of our own wisdom or power or standing before God because it doesn't mean anything before God. So that no human being, Paul says, might boast in the presence of God. Not only can't we boast in the presence of God, but we don't want to boast in the presence of God because truly we would have nothing to boast about. Before God, we can't help but be foolish and weak and low and despised compared to him. Pastor Tom likes to compliment Christians by calling them strange, and that's good. 
I would just add to the list, you can also call Christians foolish and weak and lowly. So what happens? What happens when we stand before God like that? What happens when we stand before God with our hands completely empty, no pretenses, nothing to boast about? Well, Paul tells us what happens. He says, because of him, because of God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. When we come before God, both now and at the end of all things, we realize we must first be empty of ourselves. We must recognize that on our own we are foolish and weak and lowly and sinful. Because only when we are empty of ourselves do we see that Jesus is there standing at the ready, ready to fill us up. We can boast, but we boast in him. He fills us up with his wisdom, his strength, his standing as the Son of God. He gives us forgiveness and eternal life. We have been given this word of the cross, this foundation of the cross upon which we are able to stand now and when we stand before God. And for us, the cross is nothing less than God's power to save. Therefore, as Christians, we seek to live as people of the cross. And so let's be absolutely clear what that means to be people of the cross. It means that there is no room for us to think anything of ourselves, especially against and above other people. As soon as we do, we'll begin to boast in something other than the Lord, thinking that we have some wisdom, some strength, some power, Something that we'd like to add to the mix of our salvation. But you see, when we seek to add something like that, what we're really doing is subtracting from the cross. And that's what the Corinthians were, were doing, Paul says. But, but again, we can't save ourselves. We can't earn God's righteousness. We can't impress him with our actions. But we can come before God. Lowly as we are, and when we do, God says, I have something for you. And he gives us Jesus Christ. And that's how we approach one another, too. We don't think anything of ourselves, but we consider Jesus, who is everything for us. Secondly, living as people of the cross means we realize Jesus purposely chose the weakest and most foolish thing in this world to show us that our wisdom and our strength doesn't amount to anything. Jesus suffered and died in order to accomplish our salvation. So if we are following him in our lives, if we are bearing our own crosses, if we are aligning ourselves with him and not with the ways of this world, then it very likely means that this world will look at us and see us as foolish and weak as well. And we may even be called upon to suffer for Jesus. This is what we call the theology of the cross. And it's what it means to follow Jesus. We don't seek after glory in this life. We don't seek to avoid suffering when it's necessary. But rather, we as Christians are willing to lay our lives down in service to others, just as Jesus once did for us. And so I'll ask you today, where is Jesus calling you to carry your cross? 
to love and to live sacrificially as you follow him. Because wherever that is, that is your vocation, as we call it. A vocation is an area of responsibility, an area that God is calling us to serve others. And for many of us, our vocations begin first and foremost with our family, with our spouse, with our children, our parents, our grandchildren, our grandparents. But it extends out from there. What about a relative in your life or a friend or a neighbor or a co-worker that God has called you to serve? And in your relationships with these various people, what are you seeking after? Are you seeking to be viewed as strong and wise in their eyes at all costs? Or are you seeking to serve them as Jesus did? And so what might change in our relationships if we start to see our standard of living as the standard of the cross? Now, let me be clear. None of us will be able to serve others as Jesus served us. None of us could. That's for God to do and for us to receive. That's why he came in the first place. To take us lowly and sinful as we are and to forgive us and strengthen us and then send us out to be his representatives, to be bearers of the cross in this world, to be people of the cross, forgiven and redeemed. After all, that is what we are and what we are meant to be for the sake of the world. As I was talking about with the kids, there's a simple yet significant practice that many Christians do, and that's making the sign of the cross. It's not just something that that Catholics do or any presupposition like that. In fact, Martin Luther uh, taught his people. He said, make the sign of the cross when you rise in the morning and when you go to bed at night to always remember whose you are. And so that physical gesture of the cross, which we can use in church, but use throughout the day, throughout the week, it's just a simple gesture that reminds us of our baptism. It reminds us of our God-given vocations to love and serve others. It reminds us of our Lord, who died on the cross and then rose again. In other words, it's there to remind us that we are people of the cross trying to live in light Of the cross of Jesus. Wouldn't it be great if we started to get a reputation, a reputation as people of the cross? That would be great because after all the cross is our wisdom, our power, and our very salvation. The cross of Jesus is our firm foundation. In his name, amen. And now may the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.